Hello, Fern Cotton here. I know you might be expecting an episode of Happy Place, but I've got something a little bit different for you, and hopefully it's exciting for you as well. You've probably heard me mention a couple of times over the last few months that I've been writing a book. Well, that book has now been written. It's called Bigger Than Us, and it looks at that concept of what that might be. What is bigger than us? Or, you know, maybe you don't believe in something that is bigger than us. You're also welcome along. Um, But if you do and you're not religious and you haven't got a name for it or a particular infrastructure for that belief, that's what I'm looking at. I'm also taking a look at wellness. We now know that it's a good idea to look after our bodies and our minds. But what about the other bit? I don't believe that we're just a body and just a mind. I believe there's something else going on. Use whatever language you're comfortable with. In this context, I use the word soul, but you might want to use the word energy, spirit, essence, whatever it is. How do we look after that bit of ourselves? That's what this book is all about. I talk to amazing, wise minds, expansive thinkers, experts about loads of different subject matters that essentially give us some tools to have a connection with ourselves, the people around us, the world around us, and that's something bigger. My hopes for the book were that the topics can calm the anxiety that we might feel through connection, help us find happiness through purpose, help us feel some comfort in the universal, and also just generally thinking bigger to unlock ourselves and our full potential. I weave in a couple of my own stories here and there, good and bad, you know what I'm like, I'm as honest as can be. And I want this to be massively relatable. It doesn't need to be full of jargon or for an exclusive club of people. Talking about whether you want to call it spirituality or just the bigger picture is for everybody. No matter what your beliefs, where you come from, what your lifestyle is like, what your job is, it doesn't matter. This subject is for everyone. It doesn't matter if you've never read a book about spirituality or thinking bigger before. It doesn't matter. Welcome along. This is for everybody. Bigger Than Us will be available as a hardback on ebook and an audiobook on the 20th of January. You'll be able to get your audiobook version on Audible, Apple Books and Google Play. But I thought I'd give you a little exclusive listen to some of it here. Are you up for it? Do you fancy it? If so, stick around. This is the introduction and the whole first chapter, which is all about shamans. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. This is the first chapter and introduction from my new book, Bigger Than Us. Enjoy. Writing this book has changed my life. 
I've gulped down knowledge with an unrivaled thirst and made willing changes to my life in the name of finding a deeper connection and hopefully to write a book that will be meaningful to you. Yet I had no idea of the impact it would have. I had no clue that so much would change in such a short space of time. I'm confident it will have a similar effect on you. All I'm asking is that you have an open mind and then just sit back and enjoy learning from a host of wise minds I'm going to introduce you to. I'm at a pivotal point in my life where I feel a lurking fog that crept in like a November morning in my early 30s, lifting. This book has marked the start of a process of shedding I didn't even know I needed. Old layers of life peeling away, falling off in great swathes to reveal new perspectives and a much-welcomed lightness. Are you up for it? Do you want to dig deeper with me? Let me put some lexical oomph behind this life pivot and explain what we're about to do. By now, we all have a rough idea of how to look after our bodies and minds. We know that eating a balanced diet, doing a bit of exercise, and remembering that cigarettes look cool in films but suck for our lungs will help our bodies out. We know that having decent relationships with others, doing things we love and refraining from binging social media will give us a healthier mind. But what about the other bit? The, what do you want to call it bit? The soul? Spirit? Awareness? Energy? I don't mind what you call it as I'm not sure what name to pin on it myself, but I know it's there. I personally believe, wait, Sod it, I want to be pretty definite about this. I know that I am not just a body and a mind. There is some other inexplicable part of me which I think gets forgotten about far too regularly. The part of me that feels a deep, instant connection with certain strangers I've met over the years. The part of me that is pure intuition and knows the answer, even though I'm tempted to Google the question. The part of me that felt and saw a celestial rainbow of colours during childbirth. The part of me that has felt pure bliss when tripping out looking at the sky. The part of me that could burst into a million tiny pieces when hearing a song that just gets me. How am I looking after that part of me? We'll get to that later as we'll romp through this complex, deep and hopefully nurturing journey together. As well as nurturing that part of ourselves that gets massively overshadowed by our bodies and minds, I want to explore the concept of everything else outside of us too. Again, call it what you like. God, a higher power, the universe, and how we connect and perhaps even communicate with it. Not to complicate matters too much early on, but this exterior energy or higher power is recognised by many spiritual leaders as something that is within us, not outside of us as we may believe. But again, we'll get to all of that later down the line. Reconnecting with life. I believe that we need to look at this part of ourselves and find new ways to expand our thinking now more than ever before. En masse, we've never been in more trouble and we know it. We can't always pinpoint why, but the jittery feeling of discontentment is never far away. There probably hasn't been a time in history where we have been so stressed, anxious, depressed, confused, and at times disheartened. We are more technologically advanced than ever before. 
can video call someone on the other side of the planet, order shoes that arrive on the same day, send satellites into space to help us navigate our route to work, and have modern medicine to help us in physical crises. Yet we're usually dissatisfied and feel we are lacking. We have more than any other generation, yet that feeling of lacking is growing by the minute. I think all of these uncomfortable feelings are rooted in our total subliminal disconnect. It's something I've talked to my dear friend Sarah Wilson, activist, writer and all-round amazing egg, about at length. We are all in disconnect. We know we are abusing our planet. We know we aren't always genuinely connecting with other humans heart to heart. We know we are driven more by fear and less by love and are floundering around wondering why we feel so off-centre. We cannot fix this feeling with a new workout, by changing our diets, or with mindfulness alone. Something much bigger, more expansive and more powerful is needed. Connection. Connection isn't calling up our mate once a week to check in, lovely as that is. True connection is remembering we are all one. Not just as individual humans, which we seemingly forget on a daily basis with our road rage, divisive attitudes and war, but also with nature. There is no separation or distinction. That might not ring true to you immediately, but it is something I'm going to explore in this book as we work out how to nurture our souls and get back to total connection. The hugeness of life. The title of this book, Bigger Than Us, is supposed to be relieving, an en masse collective few that maybe there is something larger at play. This is not to diminish the human experience, my life or yours. It's simply a way of thinking that allows us to take the heat out of the small annoyances and problems in life so we can remember how huge all of this is. If we remember that we are on a ball, spinning in space, and the only ball we know of with life on it, with our own sun and moon and other planets beautifully dancing with synchronicity and precision nearby, all held in place due to energy that we can't see, then maybe it won't matter so much that we messed up at work or said something stupid we regret. Looking at energy allows us to get out of our heads and marvel at the magic that is constantly happening all around us. Life is bloody huge. My head is already bursting with thoughts and questions, but hey, that's the mind just trying to steal the limelight again. More magic. I would have been petrified to write a book like this five years ago. I would have trepidatiously typed while second-guessing what every cynical person out there might say. I've always felt inferior to cynical people. I've labelled them cool, edgy, perhaps even more intellectual. But honestly, at this point in my life, I am so over that. I love exploring spirituality and what else lies within us and outside of us. The magic, the connection, the inexplicable. I love it. I'm an out-and-out spiritual junkie and there is no stopping me. So in short, if you are extremely cynical about this sort of thing, that is cool. Welcome along. My job with this book is not to convince you otherwise. It's to hopefully give you some other options and tools that might help you find more meaning, magic and purpose in life. We often think purpose comes from having power or opportunity, but that's not the sort of purpose I'm talking about. I'm talking about purpose and meaning from within an inner knowing that propels you towards a deeper experience of life. 
This book is about getting under the itchy clothes of life, getting beneath the thoughts, rumination and constant noise of the modern world. It's connecting the dots and making sense of the nonsensical. This process throughout the book is not going to be wishy-washy or surface. This book isn't exclusively about burning incense and partaking in gong baths while wearing smocks, although they may feature if there is reason to. It's about getting curious and cultivating the willingness to see life in its full-coloured, bold, ever-changing beauty. I heard a term coined recently that made sense of the commodification of spirituality in recent years. Spirituality light. Nodding to the vast interest in spiritual rituals without the deeper exploration or openness underpinning them. For example, and please remember, I am not judging anyone here as I'm on this learning curve with you all. Many out there may partake in yoga, waiting for a six-pack to emerge without experiencing the deep connection from the breathwork and mental stillness of the practice. Many will burn sage in their homes, hoping that negative energy will magically disappear from their lives without any willingness to look at why they might be attracting negative energy into their lives in the first place. For us to go on this journey together, you will not need to purchase a rose quartz toilet seat or go anywhere near a wind chime. You need nothing more than an open mind and a little curiosity. The speed of life. I'm also deeply fascinated with finding out if it's entirely possible to live a daily spiritual life in the velocity of the modern world. I know that minutes after coming out of a meditative state, I can shoot to pure rage that my next day delivery hasn't turned up. The irony. One minute purely in the moment. The next using time as a weapon against myself. If I'm honest, my spiritual awareness is mostly only rearing its head in those moments I actively carve out time for it. But what about the messy bits of modern life? A bulging inbox? Kids screaming and demanding to watch YouTube even when you've said no. A traffic jam and you're half an hour late for work. A friend accusing you of neglect. How can we tap into spirituality in those moments? I'm at a juncture in life where I know that following a spiritual path makes me feel good. And now it's time to really commit to it. Spirituality is often seen as an add-on, the extra bit on the side. But more recently, I've started to see that it is life. It's not the side dish to the main course of life. It's the whole meal, starter, main and dessert. The rest is merely seasoning. I want more peace, a deeper connection, a trust in life, faith instead of worry, more meaningful moments, acceptance in the messy bits, even meaning in the messy bits. I know the only way for me to do this is to take an even deeper dive into theories, methodologies and practices that have been around way, way longer than the internet and modern science. Making the ordinary extraordinary. This isn't a new way of thinking to me, thanks to dear Lynn Cotton. The mothership and I have talked about spirituality more than any other subject over my lifetime. Mum is on a constant mission for meaning, and mostly magic. She often wants the magical answer or explanation to help soothe worry and fear, rather than a statistic or something purely practical. I've watched her zoom in on orbs in photographs to find minuscule hidden images that may inspire or guide her. 
She has found many blurry outlines of her late dog Wilf trapped in floating orbs caught on camera in a snapshot moment. Which may sound very out of the box to you, but again, if these moments bring peace and connection to the individual, why question it or judge? She always actively encouraged me to look outside of everyday thinking, to find the extraordinary, and I'm eternally grateful for that. At a young age, mum inadvertently introduced me to meditation, even though I had no clue what it was. She had a cassette. For anyone under the age of 25 reading this, you can indeed have sympathy for my generation having to rely on cassettes and their often tangled tape, which she would often pop on for both of us to listen to. We would lie on the 80s dusty pink floral sofa and zone out while listening to an audio experience that to this day is still crystal clear in my mind. The narrator, using hushed tones, would usher you through a wooden door set on a long mosaic tiled corridor and there you would find yourself in a house with many rooms. Each room we were guided into held a different colour from the last. The first room was red, with many red objects within it, which you could pick up and examine. The next was yellow in hue and contained many sunshine-coloured objects of interest. I adored letting my mind wander through this imaginary house and eventually onto a shoreline on a beach umbrellaed with stars. I can so vividly remember the images my imagination threw up in those childhood moments, perhaps more vividly than real-life occurrences that I experienced. What I didn't realise was that this imagined house was emulating the chakras and their colours and purpose. As an eight-year-old, I merely found it a relaxing and super fun experience, but really it was a beautiful, gentle introduction to how we can relax our minds into a meditative state. This experience also subliminally taught me to look outside of the box, to reach for the seemingly impossible to seek the magic and to make the ordinary extraordinary. Pinner days. I grew up in a suburban town on the outskirts of London, in a mock Tudor semi-detached house with a hard-working mum who held down four different jobs and a dad who honed his craft as a sign writer for his whole working life, bar a brief stint as a milkman before I was born. Nothing out of the ordinary there. A classic 1980s slash 90s suburban childhood, full of school pack lunches, chats on house phones and the odd camping holiday thrown into the mix. Yet mum was always up for the extraordinary, often desperately seeking it out. On Pinner High Street, above a small shop that sold crystals and wind chimes, there was a therapy room. I just had to call my mum to reacquaint myself with the name of this shop as the decades have made the memory fade to sepia tones and she tells me, with absolute clarity, the shop was called Dreamcatcher, which is no surprise to any of us. You could get many treatments from Reiki to energy healing and past life regression, all while below the treatment room window, the good people of Pinner bought their weekly shop in the giant Tesco over the road. My first experience of Pinner's very own spiritual portal was around the age of 16. Mum had been before and said I might have fun booking in for a past life regression session. After making my way past an Everest-sized pile of crystals in Dreamcatcher's shop entrance, I ducked under the stalactites of wind chimes hanging from every inch of the ceiling to make my way upstairs to the treatment room. A middle-aged lady with coiled tangerine hair asked me to lie down and close my eyes. 
I can't recall exactly what happened next, but I imagine that while I had my eyes closed, she waved her hands around over and above my body, never touching me but giving off that buzz of energy that is so often experienced with Reiki. Now, hold on to your hats as I tell you the part you'll either be fascinated by or laugh your head off at. The first past life she recalled for me was from a period in the early 1900s where I had a twin brother who was my partner in crime as a trapeze artist. We would swing together in synchronised beauty high above a cheering crowd. On one occasion, I lost my grip and my dear twin's hand slipped through my fingers like a wet bar of soap and he fell to his death. Tragic, I know. And maybe far-fetched, but I loved the process nonetheless. And even if I came away not 100% wedded to the story itself, it massively piqued my interest in past life regression. It could also be tenuously linked to my omnipresent need to make sure everyone in my life is okay and safe at all times. Who knows? I more recently spoke to the incredible Rhonda Byrne, author of The Secret. And she talked passionately about how we never die as our energy, insert here, spirit, soul, or whatever you're comfortable with, can never die. You don't have to believe in reincarnation to be on board with this one, as none of us truly know where our energy goes once the physical part of us dies. Could it embody another physical form or just weave into our complex universe in inexplicable ways? Mum... Gosh, this is such a Lynn-heavy section. She's going to love it. Also used to open my eyes to alternative possibilities on our evening walks. Eager to break the mundanity of suburban routine, instead of settling for Coronation Street after our Linda McCartney sausages, we would stomp around the mean blocks of Ricelip at dusk. These chats would veer off into the deep expanses of life's unimaginable possibilities as Mum reached for the stars above the mock Tudor maze. On one occasion, Mum stopped in her tracks and looked around. I mimicked her stance and looked for what had caught Mum's eye. Do you feel it? She whispered. I stopped and looked into the distance with a little more focus and I did. I did feel a shift in something. This is where things get a little weird again, but you know me, I love weird. The air seemed thicker. Time seemed to have stopped we both marvelled at this secluded moment, just me, mum, and this strange shift in energy we were both feeling and possibly even seeing. Everything looked a little more hazy than normal, a little purple even. Team Cynical will of course say there must have been a nearby bonfire or a heavy mist en route, but it didn't feel like that. Team Cynical, I love you just as much as those who are nodding their heads right now having experienced something similar. We can, of course, continue to look exclusively for the scientific explanation to everything, but maybe there is a little room for intrigue, magic, and the totally weird that is left unexplained too. We felt something inexplicable on our nightly walk that summer's evening, an invisible movement and an all-encompassing shift of sorts. The delicious juxtaposition of the extraordinary in the setting of the totally ordinary. Something bigger. 
My unusual experiences as a kid and teen are not limited to these two isolated moments. These often inexplicable or deeply connecting moments are woven through my life like a silver thread, reminding me of the beauty, strangeness and hugeness of life. I'm yet to make sense of all of these moments, so hope to learn as much as I can during this process. Maybe you'll have had similar experiences that I'll be able to help you make sense of too, or maybe all of this is new to you, in which case, how bloody exciting! I am buzzed for you and what you're about to read and hopefully experience too. Do not fret, this book is not going to be exclusively my trippy experiences from the Pinner High Street days. Spirituality, of course, goes way beyond a few freaky experiences and a local crystal shop. We have so much to cover and so much to learn. I am the most eager student, notepad in hand, eyes wide, ready to go. I feel very lucky to have insights and teachings from a plethora of experienced, wise and incredibly smart individuals from varying backgrounds with differing expertise who can guide us through theories and practices to help us connect with life, ourselves and others. They will share their knowledge and impart advice on how we can look after our energy, stroke soul, stroke spirit, which will subsequently help us remember that we are connected to everyone and everything. I hope this book will also act as a reminder that spirituality is for everyone, no matter where you're from, what you've got going on or what you currently believe or don't believe. Even though I've been borderline obsessed by this stuff for most of my life, I still have so much to learn and so much to unpick. I have a caftan full of questions and my excitement is of seismic proportions. So, shall we crack on? Are you ready to see past the human body and mind so we can have a poke around in the other bit? Are you ready to experience something bigger than us? Part one, love. Is there anything bigger than love? It's all-encompassing and the catalyst to life itself, but when we can't see it, life can feel barren, brittle and unforgiving. Love is safety, comfort, reassurance, motivation, community building, miracle making. It's omnipresent and everywhere, so why at times does it seem to vanish completely? When we are lonely, depressed or full of rage, we are blind to love's power and mass. It seemingly dissipates before our very eyes at the mere whiff of negative distraction. Life's distractions can be so big that we forget it is our lifeboat whenever we need it. We just have to remember that it's not always exclusively an exterior source of love that can carry us through life. It is also always within. We often think of love as a rather one-dimensional proposal. It's all red roses and romantic dinners backed by a sunset, we forget that love is the driving force behind each unfurling flower and pulsing through every jolt of hysterical laughter. We usually only recognise the romantic or family element to it, but it has so many other sides. It's so powerful that when we refuse to see it, we create a vicious friction that separates, causes suffering and sparks war. In those moments where we are blind to the love that is around us and within us, we lose our connection. Self-loathing or judgment upon others blocks us from the abundance of life. Self-love is a term that's been thrown around a lot in the last couple of decades, 
But have we really noted the powerful nature of simply loving oneself? I think not, as we're living in one of the most divisive eras, a time in which we use social media to compare ourselves to others and use labels to exclude and discriminate against others. We've lost sight of the love we need for ourselves and others. My relationship with love has changed over the years. At times, I merely viewed it as something to get drunk on. I would crave kisses and human touch and the thrill of feeling my heart flip upside down with lust. An intoxicating, heart-thumping love was all I desired and the only kind of love I recognised outside of the grounded, long-lasting love for my family. Self-love was not in my orbit for a long time. I assumed I would like myself more if I was loved by another, maybe even lots of others. As my TV audience increased, I expected to find more acceptance of the bits of me I didn't like. Maybe if others loved my insatiable enthusiasm that I felt out of control of, I would like it more too. Maybe if my characterful nose and bulbous eyes were applauded, I would find it easier to look in the mirror without judgement. I learned that lesson the hard way and have only really started to understand the power of self-love and acceptance recently. How we get to that place is another story. My own roller coaster of self-examination has been one of severe self-loathing at times, and I'm so desperate to settle into a calmer plateau of self-acceptance. I assume that once I get there, my relationships will be better, my love for the planet will be more respectful, and my understanding of love in all its many guises will be cemented. I believe love is where it's at when it comes to living a spiritual life of connection and meaning. It's often the answer to so many of our problems, but so often we forget it's for us due to feelings of unworthiness and can't perceive it in others as we only see our differences. To help us peel back the red shiny wrapper of love so we can feel it more, see it more clearly and understand its potency, I'm going to explore several different subjects with some incredible people I've met over the years to help us on our merry way. Here's to love and a deeper, more meaningful life. Shamans Love is complicated but essential for connection to that something that is bigger than us. We often feel confused by love and so devoid of it, and maybe we can attribute some of that lacking to the modern world. We value success and accumulation of stuff and power over the abundance of love that we have access to whenever we want. It's long been the work of shamans to help others tune into that love globally and internally with historic practices and treatments. I've been fascinated with the mysticism that surrounds shamans for as long as I can remember. So often we are coerced into believing there is only one option in life. We are exposed to limited choices when it comes to health, happiness and connection. The confines lie in the hands of the government, media outlets and monster brands. We are subconsciously imbibing messaging and rules without even recognising that our beliefs are changing by the minute. Looking to the esoteric theories and ideas that might not dwell in the mainstream has been essential for my well-being, ongoing recovery from mental illness and connection to the hugeness of life. There simply is no better place to start than with shamans and their beautiful look at love and life. Where did it all begin? 
Shamanism is said to have originated in Siberia, yet once commonly recognised, it became apparent that it was conducted the world over in many cultures. The practices involved have been used and cultivated for thousands of years in India, by Native Americans and in South America, with cave art depicting shamanic rituals dating back as far as 30,000 years ago. Yet there is evidence of shamanism being widely used throughout Asia, Tibet, Hungary, Sweden, Central Europe and Africa to name a few. The exact origins and dates are unknown, but it's certainly been a spiritual path for many, which at times indigenous tribes have had to fight for, as throughout history, those who have not understood its power and importance have either dismissed its validity or taken from it without acknowledging its origins. Many individuals still practice shamanism today to help people connect with nature, spirits, community and themselves. But what is it? How do they carry out this ancient work and what does it look like? Calm and connected. The work of a shaman may differ in practice, but most would align with the idea that their work is to act as a healer. Using a plethora of skills honed over many years, the shaman employs rituals, psychic ability, acupuncture, energy work, sound bowls, herbs, tinctures and reflexology, among other esoteric practices, to heal physical, emotional and mental pain, problems and trauma. The time spent with a shaman will differ depending on their particular teachings and perhaps even where they are based geographically. Their work is in conjunction with that something bigger. It's tied tightly to the power of the land and nature and has always to work in harmony with it. The shaman's work is also a direct communication with all that is usually unseen by the human eye, spirit, energy and psychic ability. It's a powerful concoction of ceremony and healing on a physical level interwoven with a deep understanding of the hugeness of life. I've met a couple of UK-based shamans over the years and have been helped massively with examining my own resistance to accepting love. It might be helpful to meet one in this book for a deeper understanding, so keep reading to get a glimpse into the world of Wendy Mandy. I first heard of Wendy via Russell Brown's brilliant podcast, Under the Skin. I was curious and fascinated listening in on their conversation and felt a sense of peace immediately wash over me. Whenever I listen to wise people talk, I feel calm and connected as the little worries and insecurities I carry daily dissipate. They cannot stand the heat of wisdom and the truth. All the rubbish and modern-day debris just falls away. Coincidentally, or perhaps fatefully, shortly after hearing Russell's podcast episode, a great friend of mine, breathwork coach Rebecca Dennis, suggested I have a session with her friend who was a shaman. And guess who that friend was? The Wendy Mandy. Wendy doesn't have a website and minimal results come up when you Google her, which made me even more intrigued. It's all word of mouth stuff, which is wonderfully old school, yet it's almost impossible to get an appointment with her as she's booked up for months in advance. In a completely jammy move, I managed to get an appointment after Rebecca and Russell put in a good word, so expectantly awaited my session with Wendy a month down the line. Wendy has spent most of her life working and living with tribes around the world, the Kogi of Colombia, the Samburu of northern Kenya and the Yawanawa of Brazil, to name a few. 
Wendy is currently writing a book about all of the amazing people she has worked with, learned from and taught over the years, which I cannot wait to read. Energy and Power Wendy's practice room is rammed with beautiful books on every subject, from natural medicine to astrology. There is a treatment bed next to a cabinet of well-loved rattles and sound bowls, with a painted ceiling above depicting flying creatures in red and blue. It's a hypnotic space that keeps your attention and intrigue, with eyes darting from one curiosity to the next. I lay on the bed with a towel over my bare legs, feeling slightly insecure as I always have freezing feet, which at the end of the bed actually looked tinged with purple. Oh, I could have painted my toenails too, but hey, there are bigger fish to fry today. Sat by my aforementioned violet hooves, Wendy instantly gets to work rubbing life into them. The most heavenly moment of my day so far. I love having my feet rubbed. I turn into a sort of stoned, purring cat with slurred words and squinty eyes. My body relaxes entirely as Wendy asks me some questions and I rattle off my list of worries and past regrets that I carry around with me daily in a cumbersome and perhaps unnecessary backpack. Wendy is small but also huge. Her tiny frame is almost unable to carry the size of her energy and power. It spills out into the room and makes me feel safe, my own torrent of insecurities wrapped up in her knowledge and total understanding of life. Phew, what a relief. If only momentarily, I feel a weight lift. After the most heavenly foot rub that seems endless, but simultaneously way too quick for my liking, Wendy steps up to my side and places two fingers on my pulse points. I'm familiar with this technique as my dear friend, Gerard Kite, who also practices five-element acupuncture, initiates treatment by checking the energy in the pulse points too. From my understanding, this is where the acupuncturist feels for blocks in the body. Still woozy from the foot caressing, I'm startled when seconds later an acupuncture needle is plunged into my ribs and twisted, releasing the most powerful whoosh that feels like a firework going off internally, sparks fizzing out to all corners of my body. My shoulders, my feet, youch, and the hollow between my shin bone and calf muscle discombobulated and desperately trying to catch up with the constant stimulation of needle to skin. I feel like cracking up with laughter or maybe crying, perhaps both. All the while, Wendy is pressing me on the past troubles I've mentioned to her during the blissful foot rub. She's constantly excavating, trying to work out the root cause, the pain point, the twisted knot that needs untying. Next, rattles. I close my eyes and Wendy shakes a large cacophonous rattle all over my body. My ears follow the sound and at times it's overwhelming, the noise filling up my whole body, making my solar plexus tingle. I'm told to imagine myself at a specific age that relates to the start of some self-limiting beliefs. And as the rattle works over my body, I'm to imagine that image dissipating entirely. There is such relief when the noise stops. I exhale deeply, yet not with completion, as instantly some celestial gongs reverberate in place of the crashing rattle. The sound bowl responsible for this beautiful noise is placed on my tummy so I can feel the sound vibrations in my bones. My tummy is such a delicate spot. 
I'm sure many of you feel that way too. It's my squishy bit where my babies grew that I tried to cover in large pants and high-waisted jeans. I don't like being touched there at all, not even by my poor husband. But this was different. This was comfort. This was protection and a dissolving of something, possibly some of those insecurities. I opened my eyes to a blurry vision of Wendy sat at my feet, having just rubbed her own blend of rose oil into my not-so-purple feet. As I awaken to my surroundings, my resounding thought is, what the fuck just happened there? I slowly sit up as Wendy comes into focus. My heart and head feel slightly lighter. I float out of the door and onto the busy streets of London, which feels like being plunged into ice-cold water, my eyes adjusting to the light and speed of people passing, a newborn mole blinking into the madness. The cab ride home is a moment to reflect on how I rarely choose to seek this peace and connection. My inclination to follow the modern world in its busyness and pace. My body still vibrating from the treatment. I vow to choose peace over stress, and seek more moments of connection. A chimwag with Wendy. Location, Wendy's kitchen, surrounded by plants, photos of friends from all over the globe, and little bottles of rose oil. As soon as that rose scent hits my nostrils, I relax. I asked Wendy, what exactly is a shaman? And Wendy replied, a shaman is a person who walks between worlds. So what are these worlds? These worlds are this physical world we live in now. Here is a table, the sink, this water, it's the physicality. Then the other worlds are the worlds we can't see. We only use about 5% of our senses. We're using a very, very small amount of who we actually are. We are only using a very small amount of our perception. So, a shaman like me, somehow, through experience and all sorts of learnings, has come out of that small perception into other perceptions. So I can see and feel how plants talk to us, how animals talk to us, and how elementals talk to us, which are spirits of the natural world. This world is a dot in the universe, which is a dot in the universes. A child knows that. They lie on their back in the grass and look up at the expansive sky and say, what are those stars? But we lose that perception because we're rushing around in this space-time reality, chasing our tails. We don't spend enough time wondering and being. I asked Wendy, so that expansive thinking that you use and work with, is that available to all of us? Wendy replies, yes. Recently, I treated an 11-year-old boy who was a drug dealer. When he came in, he had taken a lot of street skunk, which had been grown with a lot of pesticides. That kind of skunk is not marijuana, so it causes psychosis. He was in a mess. I knew he was stoned when he lay down on my treatment bed. I worked with his feet and got him relaxed, and then I did the first acupuncture needle, and he said, What the hell is that? That's better than drugs. And I said, What do you feel? And he said, I feel high. So I said, In what way? And he said, I don't know, a relaxed high? So I told him, five element acupuncture has connected you. Can you feel that? You're connected to something. Can you feel it? He said, yeah, usually I have to get really stoned to do that. And actually it still doesn't feel like that. Anyway, 
Cut to today, he's now free from drugs and he has a lot of support. And I'm training him to be a boy that can get the others away from trying to get that high by smoking skunk. They know something is missing, so they're smoking to find this thing that they know is out there. They're trying to connect with their spiritual self, but they're going the wrong way about it. I say to Wendy, aren't we all doing that to some extent? Aren't we all trying to feel connected, but we do it by drinking to get drunk, eating too much addictive sugary food, sex, buying shoes we don't need, and so on. How have we got to this place where we have lost touch with nature and our spiritual selves? Wendy says, totally. That's what I'm writing about in my new book. One of the key points is that disassociation from each other and nature. We have lost our right relationship to each other and nature. That has happened over the course of 12,000 years. We've lost that everyday relationship with each other. We have to change so much our educational system, the nuclear relationships in a family. We saw this in lockdown as we lost our support systems, our tribes. That's why we saw so many lockdown problems during the pandemic, like a rise in online shopping addictions, porn addictions and mass consumption of alcohol. We have been hypnotised. The biggest addiction is perhaps social media. We have to understand that it is an addiction which is replacing our ability to tune in to ourselves. It is very other. I said, what do you mean by other? Wendy says, social media produces a huge codependent relationship with lots of others that we don't know instead of a relationship with ourselves. We can't take social media away from people, but we can ask them to spend some time of their day doing things that are off screens, which requires discipline. Wake up and do something positive without your phone. There are so many ways to do this. The big one being the rise in modern day meditation. That's the new spirituality. I ask Wendy, is having a good relationship with yourself imperative when it comes to living a spiritual life? Yes but it's also about discipline. If you're in a habit, it takes nine days to get out of it with discipline. You have to write discipline into your relationship with yourself. That's how you'll move away from your addictions that are connected to the other. Again, other meaning anything outside of yourself. Plug away at it and keep going until you have that relationship with yourself nailed, and then you will notice the sort of stuff I notice. People ask me, how do I become a shaman? I say to them, first of all, connect to you with compassion. It's all about compassion. I ask Wendy, is fear the biggest thing stopping us from having a relationship with ourselves? Fear is the absence of love. Love is what you feel when you meditate. You feel consciousness, God, spirit, the carnival, whatever you want to call that thing, whatever you call it, you feel that. Wendy, when you're treating people, what is it that you're looking to do in those sessions? I look to put that person in touch with their original essence that knows everything. That baby that came into the world from God, source, love. Again, whatever you want to call it. Everyone has that in them. And I want to put them back in touch with that. I want to move them past the addictions, past the programming, past the childhood, past the trauma, and ignite that connection. Wendy, how does the physical element of your practice help with that? 
I tune in via the feet, as the feet are a map. It's called reflexology. Your ears, hands and feet are a map. Reflexology has been used for thousands of years. I can tell what is happening mentally, physically, spiritually and emotionally with you through your feet. Then I take your pulses, which are in the wrist, and those are six pulses that were conceived in Taoism 10,000 odd years ago. Your body is an electrical mechanism that is a mass of moving particles that create this field, so this is a way of tuning into that field. Where is the blockage? It's like being a good plumber. What is the original cause of the original blockage in this person? The needles are used to ease these blockages. I'm going straight for the essence of that person. It manifests in both the positive and the negative. It's quite polarised. So, Fern, your element in five-element acupuncture is wood, peculiar, as that's my married name. There is earth, wood, metal, fire and water. And you are wood. Each person embodies one of these elements. Let's look at the positives and negatives of that element. You're very dynamic, like the season's spring, like a snowdrop pushing up through the ice of winter. You're the planner, creator, or on the flip side, you're stuck, angry, frustrated, bitter. Side note, I think that about sums me up. Yes, that is exactly what I feel like in life, Wendy. What we have to do is work out where your emotional scratches are. For you, Fern, your emotional scratches are that you feel unfairly accused. Yep! And misunderstood. Yes! Often we don't know what we are like as individuals as we are so used to other people's versions and projections of us instead of tuning in to who we really are. Wendy says, I think you might like my mate Mark. Not his real name, in case Mark isn't comfortable with me telling this pretty hilarious story. Who is coming here in a bit? He's the owner of a restaurant chain and I mentor him. He's an Enneagram 8. Do you know yours? Weirdly, three people this month have suggested I do the online test to find out what Enneagram number I am. I am yet to take the test, so I have no idea. A side note for you all, if you haven't already looked into this yourself, an Enneagram is used to define nine interconnected personality types, numbered one to nine. But it's deeper than that. It's an ancient method that could have originated in around AD 400, though the exact origins are unknown. I'll dive into this subject later in the book, I promise. Wendy says, I've studied it and I used to use it a lot in my work. I'm an Enneagram 8 too. We want to punch our way through life asking others, so where are we going? You want an Enneagram 8 on your raft as they'll sort it all out. The downside is that 8s are so vulnerable as well as strong, so you become highly defensive. If you allow someone into your life and they give you hell, you want to literally exterminate them. I say, ha, I think I know a few more 8s. Wendy says, the shadow side of an 8 goes, fuck you. Each Enneagram has positives to honour and negatives to learn from, much like the elements in five-element acupuncture. Wait until you meet Mark. He's going to come in here and be so loud and funny and possibly embarrassing. Oh, I can't wait. Wendy says, What we all have to do is look for the things in life that are stopping us from connecting to that something bigger, the things that get in the way. 
Those things are a horrible white noise that will stop you connecting with others, nature and yourself. It is always something that has happened in your past. If your mother was jealous, you'll have a tendency to let mother figures in who might not have your best interests at heart. If your dad was absent, you'll have the tendency to invite men who are detached into your life. For me, I have to be careful with little brother figures due to my own backstory. My tendency is to let them off the hook, so I have to watch that. These are the banana skins in life. The doorbell rings. I sit up straight. Oh gosh, I think it might be Mark. Wendy says, hello, Mark. Mark says, do you like my trousers, Wendy? They've fallen down. Wendy says, oh no. Mark says, have you got anyone else here? Wendy says, yes. Mark laughs. <laughs> As I came in the door, they just fell down. Mark has now waddled into the kitchen with his trousers round his ankles and his boxer shorts on full display. Mark cannot pull up said trousers as he's holding a huge box with both hands, which is precariously piled with fresh vegetables. I'm not sure whether to look away or help. Mark says, this is not deliberate. I promise, my God, this is not going well. I say to Mark, Mark, nice to meet you. I'm Fern. Mark, pull your trousers up. Wendy says, pull them up for goodness sake. Now go in the other room, Mark. After all that, I ask Wendy, so my last question is, what is the one thing we can all go away and do to cultivate a relationship with ourselves that in turn allows us that connection in life? Wendy says, compassion. Compassion. We are so hard on ourselves. Let's say that I've just had a row with my neighbour. They were being really noisy and I slightly lost it. The first thing is just to be kind to yourself. Think, okay, that wasn't great that I lost it there. And then calm down and practice self-love. We are all so hard on ourselves. Just spend five minutes making a tea and talking to yourself like you would a best friend. I say to Wendy, thank you. I know I need to practice this a big time. It seems the resounding takeaway from this chat is that for us to live a spiritual life, one that is connected to others and nature, we first have to cultivate a good relationship with ourselves. I'm scared, yet excited. It seems achievable, but I have a horrid feeling I have a nihilistic and unkind relationship with myself at times. In the name of connection, I know I have got to lose some of the very ingrained negative stories I put upon myself daily. I've made small efforts to do this in the past, yet it's never stuck. Now I really have no excuse. I also want to bring my kids up to love and accept themselves fully. How can I expect them to if I'm not demonstrating this in everyday life? Change is desperately needed. Day one of my self-compassion experiment. Saturday, 6.30am. Within seconds of opening my eyes, I notice that my brain has gone off on a negative rampage. I'm berating myself internally for having slept in my kid's bunk bed again. The voice acerbically whispering to self that I should be stronger and should have nailed this sleep thing with my now eight-year-old son years ago. I stop mid-sentence to examine the cause behind this self-flagellation. As guest, I have a pretty unkind relationship with myself. Is this the block that is hindering me from connecting with the beauty and magic of life? Could it be that simple? My shoulders slump. This is not going to be easy. 
In the kitchen, it's still dark outside. The street lamps illuminating tiny raindrops. The kids are already fighting over what TV show they're going to watch, and I can feel more self-berating coming on. A heaviness that ignores my intention of making delicious pancakes for their breakfast, but instead focuses on more perceived weakness on my part for not being stricter about when they can and can't watch TV. I try to steamroller this familiar inner monologue with kinder words that assure me it's no big deal, that I watched tons of TV as a kid and now as an adult would way rather read a book. It's a pointless worry. Bloody hell, this is already exhausting. Why can I not give myself a break? Starting with my hands. As I stir my way too strong coffee, I notice the cracked skin around my thumbs the skin that I pick and peel and bite when anxious. It's almost comforting, even though I know it's a small moment of self-destruction. That will need to go too. I have a vats of hand lotion upstairs that I never use. I haven't painted my nails in weeks, and as superficial as this might seem, I think my hands could do with some self-love. Maybe if I start with hands, work my way up to self, and then start thinking about the other bit, my soul or spirit, I'll get there incrementally. The next nasty moment I notice self-loathing creep in will be no surprise to anyone. It'll also possibly be your biggest trigger to letting the self-love slip. Social media. This one is a low-hum self-loathing. It hums so constantly that it's easy to overlook. It's a slow crumble from the inside that at first goes unnoticed. It begins with curiosity, but incrementally morphs into comparison and then total despair. I close Instagram and slam my phone down a little too hard on the kitchen worktop. The berating continues as I reflect on my own lack of discipline. It's the weekend. Why am I allowing myself to squirrel down this vortex of other people's supposed lives, arguments, thoughts and projections? Must be more strong-willed. This is the discipline Wendy spoke of. A discipline that gets us away from our addictions which are hindering our overall connection. At this stage, I'm not sure whether this inner pep talk after said insta-binge is coming from a place of love. I'm not sure the discipline is coming from a place where I believe I deserve better. I think it's coming from a place where I believe I'm a weak, pathetic person. Oh boy, this is all so much harder and so much more deep-rooted than I'd imagined. Fear and loathing in my local park. A wintry afternoon brings more cloud, but simultaneously a desperate need to get out in some fresh air as both kids begin to climb the walls. They've already turned the kitchen into a giant game of the floor is lava with every cushion from the house, even my favourite tasseled and more decorative than practical ones, and have strewn them across the crumb-infested floor to use as platforms to escape the lava. We need to get out of the house. After a 20-minute struggle to find the exact socks that Rex needs for our local park adventure, we are out into the grey, damp air, feeling relieved. Ejected from the mess of home on a lazy Saturday and into a world of trees, local squawking green parakeets and little streams that Rex loves to jump over. During the global pandemic, I noticed several things subtly change in my kids' behaviour. 
Rex's sleep almost immediately went out of the window, and Honey's fear of dogs escalated to extreme terror. I imagine the general anxiety emanating from every human affected many kids in myriad ways. Yet here I am again, blaming myself. I'm taking responsibility for a whole pandemic and its effects on my kids as a small, unassuming Yorkshire Terrier approaches us. Tail wagging, eyes bright, she wants to make new friends. Honey clambers up my body like a koala hugging a tree and screams in my ear. Poppy the dog, whose owner is desperately shouting her name, runs closer with glee, mistaking Honey's sheer panic for excitement. I'm flustered, each scream a punch to the nervous system, mainly because I'm lumping self-blame onto the drama of it all too. What could I have done wrong to create this fear in my little girl? What fear of mine is she picking up? I skip to my own fear too quickly. A little worry escalates into, I'm getting it all wrong. Bingo, this is the core problem. This is the root of my self-loathing. I believe that I am the only one getting life wrong and everyone else is acing it. Phew, I am so glad I got to the bottom of this on day one of my exploration into self-compassion. Now I just have to work out how the hell to climb from under it. I flesh it out with my friend, the exceptional author and activist Sarah Wilson, who articulates the exact feeling. In her sun-drenched Australian accent, she says, Fern... You feel like everybody else got the guidebook to life and you didn't. This is it. Thank you, Sarah. It's getting lighter earlier, the spring promising to break through. Maybe it'll be easier to channel self-compassion with a little blue sky overhead. On awakening, it's easy for my mind to start compiling lists of all that I need to do today. I pause and wonder... Is that the most compassionate way I could start a new day? I don't think so. Maybe affirmations could work and get me in a positive headspace. I've read every Louise Hay book going, and I know I feel better when I train my brain like a small puppy to create new, more positive neural pathways. I love and embrace myself. I love and embrace myself. I love and embrace myself. This was the affirmation that came to mind without much thought. These were the words I needed. I can't say I wholeheartedly believed them, but maybe that's the point. I lay there wondering if it is possible for us to truly connect with the things and people we love in life without self-compassion. Without self-love, we would be oblivious to the fact that we are made of the same stuff the glistening stream water is made of, the same stuff those I love are made of. It would mean seeing myself as separate to it all. A spiritual life surely has to be based on the principle that there is no separation at all. We are love. We are beauty. We are one. I'm starting to really recognise why I have to make this mission of self-love of paramount importance. Celebrate yourself. Most of this stuff seems to be just bad habits, stuff picked up along the way in life and then used as a case against myself. I record an episode of Happy Place, the podcast, from home with a wonderful guest. I press pause on my usual instinct to pick apart the bits I could have done better. Instead, I take two deep breaths in and out, and as I close my laptop and put away my microphone, I allow myself some positive focus. 
The energy of this episode was good. The guest was open, relaxed and smiling, and maybe I played a part in that. Maybe I helped to cultivate an atmosphere that was relaxed and safe so they could talk about life on a deep level. Maybe I'll allow myself to celebrate that a little. I used to celebrate every victory, yet today I rarely celebrate a thing. I remember so clearly a warm summer's day when I was 23, when I celebrated myself fully at 11am with a crisp glass of champagne in an empty bar in London. I had just interviewed Princes William and Harry for the first time. I had been invited into Clarence House to conduct an interview about the tribute concert they were putting on for their late mother Diana, Princess of Wales. It was an out-of-body experience from start to finish, acutely aware of my missing tees and lack of experience talking to people from the upper echelons of society. I floated through the whole day. I grinned too much, stared at their faces in disbelief that I was in the same room as them, but somehow managed to stay on track with my carefully handwritten questions, which I had practised in the mirror for weeks on end. The whole interview was cheery and, looking back, probably quite sweet. I sashayed out of Clarence House, my cheeks aching from the permanent smile, and walked in my new shoes and most sensible dress, in a hue of burnt orange, down the street to the nearest bar. I swigged back the bubbles and looked up to the ceiling to thank whoever might have been up there helping me out that day. I felt grateful for the opportunity and was more than happy to raise a glass and say cheers to my own moment of success. Where has that version of me gone? I'm aware of an incremental wave of outside verbal abuse and bad mental habits on my part, which have knocked any celebration out of me. Instead, now I sit and wait for the abuse. I hand over all the power to strangers to tear me apart and tell me how awful I am. I'm lucky in the fact that my audience these days seems to be fairly on board with my work, so the abuse is limited, yet I have been through phases where strangers and the press have mentally tortured me to the point where I felt I couldn't carry on with the job. That in itself would be a whole other book, as the amount of times I've been ridiculed, mocked, and I would go so far as to say, at times bullied by the press, is unreal. I'm no victim, and I'm aware that this is the nature of the beast. I'm also incredibly aware of how there are far worse situations in life to deal with, but I can't say it hasn't affected me and my own self-worth. I'm usually on high alert, ready to second-guess the shit that might fly my way. I've taken this to the extreme and no longer really celebrate any successes or moments where things have gone well. It feels like I might be tempting fate in doing so. Changing this mindset doesn't mean I'm wanting to fling myself into pure self-adoration and indulgence all the time. I just want to mark the bits of life where there has been fluidity and joy. After years of exterior noise and judgement and a gradual move away from traditional broadcasting and its exposure, I'm now ready to claim back the bits of me that I had given up and handed over to others. The parts of me that might have been deemed annoying, the parts of me that were suggested as being stupid and useless, the parts of me that were mocked and ridiculed. I want them back, all of them, and I want to celebrate them. Why have I let someone else's definition of me, based on little fact, corrode my actual personality? I wonder how much you have let this happen to you too. I have a feeling that before I can claim this stuff back, 
I might need to feel a little bit angry first. I can feel rage in my neck just thinking about all of this. As I sit in my little office post-podcast mulling this over, I can feel my neck muscles tighten into stone. Maybe I need to excavate all of this shit first so I can make space for self-love. Or maybe this anger isn't about other people and their opinions at all. Maybe it's anger towards myself for letting them do it. I'm going to have to get quiet and work out who this anger belongs to. Loving the younger you. I'm not great at meditating. I have a feeling this too will have to change during the writing of this book. I'm sporadic with it and use it more as an SOS rather than a daily practice. I'm not sure why I'm so reluctant. I've interviewed countless people over the years who can testify to its importance and impact. I've spoken at length with monks who have gone into four-year-long retreats, meditating for up to six hours a day. I know there is peace, epiphany and contentment to be found with meditation, but I keep myself busy instead. Maybe this is a chicken and egg thing. Do I have to get self-compassion first to then allow myself the time to meditate each day? Or do I have to start meditating to get the self-love? There is a whole section on meditation on the way. On this occasion, I make a good choice. Normally, I prefer a guided meditation, something from YouTube, a guide that has a soft voice that isn't creepy or too forced, gentle music in the background. I can follow their words, which helps to keep my untamed mind on board with the letting go bit of meditating. Today, I need proper peace, so I choose to brave actual silence and being fully with myself. I'm not just seeking relaxation and rest here. I'm seeking answers too. I perch on the small round ottoman covered in cat fur, like most of my furniture, that's in the kitchen and plant my feet firmly on the ground. One big breath in and a tidal wave exhale as I instantly push away the thought that I'm being self-indulgent taking this time out when others might be sat hunched over laptops in hospitals doing vital work, teaching children and doing other helpful stuff. I quietly ask myself a question. Who is this anger for? Who does it belong to? Then I sit with it. The thoughts come in. I could be dealing with the Mount Everest of laundry downstairs right now. No, that's not a useful thought. I let it go and just focus on my feet on the floor. I need the bombardment of everyday mental chatter to subside so I can listen to my intuition. There is anger. I can feel it threatening to attack my neck again. But what is it? Who is it for? The mockery and public shaming at times has made me want to punch through walls. But these people are faceless. Bitter people behind keyboards letting their own tiny thoughts grow in size once typed letters appear on screen. Can I be angry with people I don't know, will never meet, and who have no actual bearing on my life? I don't think so. I'm concerned I'm thinking too much. I'm cognitively trying to Mrs Hinch this moment. I'm attempting to sort through all of this rubbish to get a clean result. Maybe if I just focus on the rage without the stories, I'll be able to let go some more. With the anger bubbling and the burn in my throat, another feeling arises foolishness. I feel silly. I sit with all of it without resistance. I want to get curious about it, not push it away. The longer I sit with it, the more I realise that there are fewer thoughts and inconsequential daily worries. 
I'm just with the anger. Minutes pass, but I'm not sure how many, and then the clouds start to part. I can see the rage in all its glory as something separate to me entirely. It's a huge burning ball that I'm hurling at myself, more specifically at my younger self. The part of me that I believe was naive and clueless and mirrored most of the things that were written and said about me. Some of it could even be true, but does that make me a bad person? I don't think so. Show me a person in their formative years who hasn't made mistakes or been naively excited about the newness of adult life. I'm not sure any of us could find one. I let my mind settle on an image of me in my early 20s. Plump under eyes and rosy cheeks, severely layered hair, permanent grin, dancing into fire without knowing it would be hot. Without letting judgment overshadow this image, I just sit with her. God, I hate bits of her. I can see how I've tried to run away from her so desperately. I've read, studied, thought, listened and learned to try and not be her, using books, knowledge and sensibleness as my weapons. I've tried to plaster over the naivety and foolishness that come with giddy excitement. I stretch my arms above my head and wiggle my fingers and toes to come out of this 20-minute meditation. I blink my eyes open with the newfound clarity that I need to start loving me in my 20s. I'm still on the run from her and her Avril Lavigne get-up, but I'm now aware of it and I know where that anger lives. In the process of sprinting away from her, I've given up the good bits she had as well as the bad. I've said goodbye to spontaneity and giddy excitement and replaced it with caution and at times cynicism. I actually feel a bit sorry for younger Fern. Why have I abandoned her so willingly? Can I accept her without using sympathy as my means to make the peace? Make more mistakes. Often we feel heavy from our past. The version of us that walked the planet a decade ago still taps us on the shoulder to remind us of our mistakes. It's a hard shadow to live with. This morning I was thinking back to me in my 20s, what a very different person I was back then. I believed in a linear kind of success and placed so much of my self-worth in its hands. I was so willing to change who I was and compromise my own beliefs to feel accepted. My 20s were packed with full throttle, fun, gin, fags, usually a bruised heart and very little sleep. Never quite in one time zone due to working here in the UK and also in the States, my watch was constantly being wound forward or back. At the age of 26, I had ticked a huge life goal off my list, hosting a primetime TV show on NBC in America. I was a co-host performing to millions of people weekly with the confidence of someone who had yet to deal with life's big pitfalls. Although a very sunny memory all round, this morning I was looking at this time with a fresh set of eyes. Each filming day, I would sit in the makeup chair and let Wendy, the makeup lady, turn me into someone completely different. Back then, American TV was all glamour, so within an hour, I would turn from Eastcote's very own fruit-of-the-loom-wearing scruff bag into Pamela Anderson's younger, less buxom sister. Halfway through the transformation, Wendy would wield her giant airbrush and spray foundation at my face like she was putting out a fire. 
After the massive fake eyelashes were glued to my upper lids, I would be stuffed into a skimpy, strapless dress and doused in hairspray so my perfectly curled locks would stay 10 centimetres away from my own scalp. I would look in the mirror and think, who the fuck is that? I was unrecognisable to myself, yet totally lacking the confidence to challenge the TV executives who insisted on this new, dialed-up version of me. Today, I would be like, no way, matey, while hurling a padded bra to the floor. I will not morph into what people need me to be. I can only be me, the real me. The one who was under the lacquered hair and thick foundation back in my 20s, but was too scared to reveal herself. My lack of confidence led to me making several mistakes and bad choices that have followed me through life. My lack of self-worth has led to me looking outside of myself for validation, always to my detriment. I can often look back at this version of myself and talk about her cruelly and focus more on the regret and mistakes made rather than the progress and lessons afterwards. Having had some pretty game-changing conversations with friends over the years, I've settled on a kinder dialogue with young Fern. I refuse to call her names and put her down anymore. It's no help to anyone and really rather narrow-minded. Simply put, I would not be the me I am today without the me I was back then. Go easy on your previous self. Thank her or him. Just stop. I have hit a wall. Tiredness has taken over and is creating an inner friction that I liken to the noise of sandpaper to wood. It's putting me on edge and everything feels tricky. I'm not good at surrendering. I would rather stagger to the finish line on my knees than take a moment's rest. And I think that is again due to a lack of self-compassion. The kids are at school. I've had two Zoom meetings and recorded an interview for my Radio 2 show. And yet I'm reluctant to rest. I empty the dishwasher, my feet flopping about in sliders that I'm practically dragging across the floor. I know, I am being dramatic, but you know when you've hit a wall and are shattered, everything feels dramatic. A severe lack of self-compassion stopping me from, well, stopping. The dishwasher is empty, but I cannot be asked to fill it again and leave a treacherously tall pile of dirty plates in the sink. Time to surrender. These last six days, I've gotten a little better at self-compassion. I've placed more importance on it and can see how it makes room for joy, laughter and connection. As I stare into space in the middle of my kitchen, my intuition is screaming at me to go and rest. An act of self-kindness is needed and I'm going to rally against habit and get in the bath. As soon as my skin hits the hot water, I crumple into the relaxed state my body has been craving. Why didn't I do this an hour ago? Why do I often seek stress rather than allow myself some comfort? This old belief system is still at work, with the tape replaying the story that I am unworthy of comfort, but I still have time to change it. I'm too tired for any more self-analysis today, so just sink into the bubbles and let my mind go with it. Soul Connection Jesse, my husband, and I have been obsessed with a TV show called This Is Us this year. It's more than a TV show. It's life depicted with every ounce of rawness. It's therapy disguised as TV. Pain spills off the screen and tears roll down my face every night. 
I could only handle one episode at a time due to its power and potency. If you haven't seen it, I won't spoil the plotline for you, but in season two, there is one episode that freezes your body. It's so painful. I felt like I hadn't drawn breath in minutes, but the intensity was broken by Jesse getting up and walking away. I snapped out of my fixed gaze and followed after him. Sorry, I just can't watch that tonight. It's too much. His deep brown eyes were gazing down at the floor. My husband lost his mum to a drug overdose 16 years ago. Shock and grief twisted together in a life-changing hurricane of hell. We talk about Chrissy all of the time. We talk about her with the kids as if she's still here. Nana Chrissy is a part of our family and our daily lives. Jessie is open and willing to talk about her too, which might have tricked us both into believing grief was something that could fade with time. Grief might not be living alongside Jessie all day, every day, but it is there, under the surface, in his decision-making, in the music he makes. This particular episode of This Is Us touched on something that was lying dormant in Jessie. We cried together. We talked about it all. We sat silently and let it percolate. I felt I could 100% be there for Jesse and with his pain. I could create space for this big emotion and listen to him. A couple of weeks ago, when I myself had been triggered and subsequently sank into self-loathing, I don't think I would have done quite as good of a job. Sometimes I get caught up in how well I'm supposed to be doing at work, how many people are listening to my podcast, how good the guests are on each episode, what people are feeding back to me, and I try to find meaning in it all. Yet this unexpected quiet moment with Jessie was truly meaningful. The unforeseen grief spilling into our lounge and the conversations and closeness that followed felt like actual connection. It wasn't just my mind that was able to find the right words to soothe my husband or my physical body instinctively moving to rub his back in the appropriate moments. It was a connection of something else entirely. Whether it was of our souls, our energy, maybe even Jessie's mum's energy entering the picture, it was deep, real, unrivaled connection. Meditation and yoga. What do spirituality and wellness have in common? What do you think? Your answer will be as valid as mine, of course, but for what it's worth, I think they're wholeheartedly connected. To me, they have to work in tandem, and I'm not sure wellness can be fully reached without spirituality. Spirituality is not much mentioned in the conversation around well-being, but I can only talk personally and say that I know I could drink all the green juice in the world, do Pilates daily and cover myself in reishi mushrooms and I would still not feel well unless I felt connected to that something bigger. I could be 80% wheatgrass and amazing at handstands but still feel empty inside when I turned the bedside lamp off at night. Yoga and meditation seem to be the easiest way to marry the modern-day iteration of wellness with deep-rooted spiritual concepts that have been around for eons. Having these two pillars of wellness, yoga and meditation, promoted heavily today is no bad thing as it normalises them and gives people more tools with which to cope in life. But sometimes, through the filter of the modern world, the meaning and spiritual side of both get lost. 
Yoga is perhaps misinterpreted as something to get good at, and meditation seen as a tool we can use to then achieve and do more with less stress. I'm pretty sure neither of those outcomes were in the original plans. Balancing Act I'll cut to the chase. I love yoga and practice it regularly, but often skip meditation as my ego gets in the way. My ego has a habit of listing other activities that I could be doing to distract me from taking the time to stop. Washing, reorganising cupboards, doing as many emails as humanly possible, sometimes just eating biscuits, anything to avoid meditating. I have a big inkling this might need to change for me to really engage with everything I've talked about in this book so far. I was 29 when I went to my first ever yoga class. My friend Amy, who also worked at BBC Radio 1 at the time, asked if I would like to join her favourite local yoga class after work one evening. I turned up late and rushed to the back of the class. I didn't own yoga leggings, so instead wore running shorts and a Kurt Cobain t-shirt. In front of the mirror stood a magnificent woman with the biggest blue eyes framed by eyelashes so long her blink seemed to last for seconds. Her soft American accent calmed my I-hate-being-late racing heart and drew me into the delicate, profound words she was speaking. She spoke for maybe ten minutes about the intentions for the class, which sounded lovely, but to me at this point in my life, unrelated to the physical bit we were about to get into. By the age of 29, I had spent a lot of time sweating in gyms I didn't want to be in. Beastie Boys blasting in headphones, wiping down sweaty machinery that someone else had just let loose on. I knew there had to be other options when it came to moving my body. I was also bored. So bored of viewing my body as something that needed punishing through grit and hard work on a running machine. Yoga, from the outside, seemed like a gentler, kinder practice. Every single position the mesmerising teacher, Zephyr, now a great friend, glided into looked simple but felt truly unnatural to me. A horse trying to move like a puma. It just wasn't working. I'd done a lot of ballet growing up, but the discipline needed seemed to be the complete opposite to that of this new, alien style of movement. I looked around the studio at the women and the odd man, folded like origami with utter lust. My frustration simmered on the surface of my skin. I don't like being bad at things, and due to the aforementioned assumption that when it comes to yoga, there is good yoga or bad yoga, I felt I was failing. Point missed entirely. At this juncture in life, I was aiming to be accomplished at yoga only on a very surface level, yet to understand the deep-rooted values set thousands of years beforehand. We see someone on Instagram, pencil still, upside down in a handstand, and think that until we can reach those heady heights, we won't be good at yoga. I felt like this for years. I would fall out of balances or simply not be able to contort my body into the spectrum of shapes I was seeing around me. Body bliss. About three years ago, seven years into my practice of yoga, something clicked. My stolen moments of movement away from the chaos of family life started to feel different. Each pose gave me the opportunity to explore my own physical capabilities and quiet my mind. Each pose an opportunity to let go a little more and enter new territory. I started to notice that in moments where I felt out of control, 
I could move with purpose and lose the mental chatter. These days, I might be able to knock out a few complex poses and balances that look impressive on a digital grid, but it's not about that for me anymore. It's the feeling of the practice, not how impressive it looks. The results I'm aiming for steer so far from the land of six-packs and ripped triceps, I simply want to feel good. In my practice today, there are moments when my body and mind feel aligned and I experience snippets of bliss. I still have a gelatinous postnatal tum and I can't do a handstand. I'm not sure I will ever at this point, and that's fine. Yoga is now a place of stillness, exploration and calm that I so desperately crave in life. On a practical note, yoga has become much more accessible to the masses these days, with free classes on YouTube or subscription apps, which means you don't need to join a pricey yoga centre or buy a pair of hamstring-hugging leggings that vac-pack your buttocks. I still mostly practice in my PJs, in my kitchen amid a sea of Lego and dried-up cornflakes ground into the floor. Falling off the wagon. Yoga has become one of the most obvious visuals of well-being in modern society, which again is brilliant, but also presents some tricky territory. When yoga is used without the deep, esoteric, mystical meanings behind the movement, some communities feel uncomfortable as they see their heritage being profited from and commodified. Generations of ancient communities, notably in India, have used yoga as part of daily life for centuries. So having an understanding of the culture and heritage that come with yoga offers gratitude and respect for the practice itself. I think it's always a good idea to learn what you can when it comes to a new practice that has its roots in history and spirituality. Having a deeper connection to its foundations will always offer you more to learn from. Alongside this, I do believe movement is for everyone. So if you just want to learn some simple poses to get you started and to help ease physical pain or stiffness, then yoga is a great discipline. One way of understanding how yoga can help you connect more with the world around you and connect with yourself is to look at the meanings and intentions behind the movements. For that, we need an expert and I have just the chap in a few moments' time. First, let me explain how I have fallen off the wagon when it comes to meditation. I used to meditate all of the time as a teenager and young person in my 20s. Before mindfulness apps were even a thought and headspace was just a space, I would sit on my bedroom floor, light a candle and tune into my own and surrounding energy. It was something I looked forward to, a space ensuring the time to pray for others in need, as well as to ask for personal guidance. A hybrid prayer-slash-meditation mashup, if you will. My mum would often play me meditation cassette tapes, 80s kid to the core, instead of story tapes when I was young, so the notion was introduced and normalised at an early age. I inherently know that it works for me. I'm pretty sure it works for everyone. So why are we not all doing it? all of the time. Surely we would save money and time if meditation was further normalised and encouraged from a young age. Think of all the stress-related illnesses that cost the NHS a fortune today. All the arguments we get ourselves into with others as we're not reacting in a grounded way. All the time lost worrying about things that are out of our control anyway. All of this can be lessened and channeled with meditation. It's the Zoom call to the universe. 
your direct link to wisdom, answers and calm. Again, while considering the micro and macro elements to life, that wisdom we seek, that strength we desire, that calmness we crave, it's inside all of us. Meditation is our direct line to it. The concept is obviously not promoted anywhere near enough, as a lot of the world today relies on speed, absolute digital connection at all times, and as much information as possible. We place academic intelligence above all else and think of wisdom as a fanciful idea that might perhaps come with age. As I've said, I'm almost annoyed at myself that I've fallen off the wagon so catastrophically as I was so tuned into my practice back in the day. My own excuse seems to be the arrival of kids. I whine about the lack of time to meditate to my deeply spiritual and regularly meditating brother Jamie, who consistently replies saying, If you say you have no time to meditate, then you need to meditate even more so. Ah! Irritating, but also truly spot on, Jamie Cotton. He knows his spiritual onions. So if I understand the benefits and know that meditating will help me deal with the chaos of life, why am I not doing it? It's my ego. My shouty little ego comes along to inform me that I'm far too busy to be wasting time like that. I mentally run through huge lists of tasks and chores I have to do before the sun sets, which exclude me from having to meditate. Arrogant! I think back to the days when I would use meditation as a fun and regular pit stop and can easily recognise that I dealt with life differently. There really are no more excuses. Jumbo Dragon Let's meet Jumbo Truong who is a teacher in anatomy, bodywork, ceremony, meditation and yoga. He was born into Chinese traditions where he was introduced to meditation and chanting at a very young age. He has always felt intuitive and tuned in to something bigger and now uses this in his work and everyday life. One of his earliest memories is his great-grandmother's funeral, which was the first spiritual ceremony he attended. He has clear memories of seeing his great-grandmother in his bedroom after her funeral to the disbelief of his family. Because his family didn't believe in these visits from his late grandmother, Jumbo recalls her spirit moving further and further away each night until she no longer appeared. A variety of similar experiences played out throughout Jumbo's childhood and young adult life. He always felt conflicted as he would experience the inexplicable, but his accounts retold would be rejected by his family, even though he was being brought up in a very spiritual household. At the age of 14, Jambo started working with ritual and ceremony of his own accord to connect with his intuition and his spiritual beliefs. He built altars in his room and would meditate for up to an hour a day with his grandfather by his side. At the age of 20, he studied reflexology, which he was not only passionate about, but also proved to help him with his own physical pain. At the time, he had terrible sciatica, which he was medicating with painkillers provided by his then-nurse boyfriend. The reflexology remedied his pain and boosted his passion for learning about natural medicine and helping those who needed it, initially in rehabilitation centres working with addicts. He has since gone on to study many methods of healing, which he now uses widely in his workshops and classes. Let's meet Jambo. Hello, Jambo. I'm so glad to meet you. Thank you. Same here. Jambo, when you're working on physical healing, say with reflexology, 
What is it that you're trying to do? If you think about all the energetic systems in our body, the chakra system, the meridian system, they are an interpretation of the blueprint of human potential. So I decide with each individual how to work with that blueprint. I can see where they are in relation to their blueprint. We are aiming for homeostasis. We are encouraging homeostasis by shaking up the jigsaw puzzle of the physical body. We all need to regularly keep doing this as we are dealing with constant external forces, the pandemic, the world of online, meeting new people. We are affected by the outside world constantly, so we need to keep checking in to help us get back to balance. My aim is to bring people more harmony in life. We're all made up of components of a physical, emotional, psychological and spiritual body. So the true meaning of health is a balance between these four natures of our being. We will all have a tendency to lean into one of those four elements more than the others. Some people will lean into the cerebral but will not care for their physical body at all. Others will watch out for themselves emotionally but ignore their spiritual life. Jambo, I can see how this is true in my own life. I adore yoga, but I didn't get it at first. I didn't get the spiritual side. I only strive for the physical element. I would compare myself to others and their yoga standards, but I've let that go now. How can we use yoga or physical movement to cultivate our relationship with spirit and nurture our soul with physical movement? Jambo replies, an example is when we meditate, and for me, that means taking my retreat each morning with 100 malas, that's a long time sitting. My back hurts, my shoulders will ache. So to facilitate my meditation, I have to do the asana part, the movement bit. That's the most obvious example. The second thing to mention is when we look at mental health, we exist only in the realm of the mind, constant rumination and thought, where we lose touch with what we are actually feeling. Also, if you are exclusively working in a spiritual sense, doing rituals and ceremony, you won't be grounded. Connecting exclusively to the spiritual world means you'll be flying all over the place. Life becomes a disembodied experience. Without the physical vehicle, there is no home for the spirit to live in. This meat vehicle I'm living in right now is the one vehicle that my spirit said, Jumbo, in order for you to be you, to do what you need to do and to be brilliant at it, you need to be this shape and this size. This is what I was given to deliver what spirit has asked me to do. If I don't honour my body, I won't be able to do any of it. Jumbo, simplifying it, is incorporating yoga into our everyday a way to have acceptance and a relationship with our physical body to understand it better? Jumbo says yes and to appreciate it if you have legs, it doesn't matter what size they are, have respect for them and appreciate them. Jambo, you know what? In the writing of this book and in my everyday life, I think I've overlooked how much I'm trying to dive into the spiritual with total disregard for the physical element. I almost detach from the body at times with a desire to experience the mystical, but I now understand that without my body, none of it's going to happen. I need to explore that notion when I'm practising yoga. I'd love to talk to you about meditation. We've seen a rise in the normalisation of meditation in recent years. It's been talked about more, commodified in ways too, but still so few practice it daily. Can I admit something to you? I currently only really use it as an SOS in tough times. Jambo says, 
Wrong. You should not use it as an SOS. Said with love from my heart, Fern. I know. Help me, Jumbo. Jumbo tries. I've been meditating my whole life. In my 30s, I started experimenting with the more Western practices I was witnessing around me. I was placing more importance on the physical side of things. I was more interested in learning how to perfect a handstand than cultivating a full-bodied spiritual practice. I let my daily meditation slide and I started to see negative outcomes instantly. There are so many reasons why meditation is a good idea. In the West, we think it's all about closing our eyes and trying to relax. It's so much more. It fundamentally helps us to have a relationship with our ego. Let's go back to yoga for a minute. If when we're practicing yoga, we focus on joy, total bliss in the moment, we welcome spirit in. We can embody spirit. If we are in suffering in our yoga practice, pushing our bodies and in pain, there is no room for spirit. Spirit wants to be here when we are having a good time. Meditation is the same. It allows us to connect with this feeling on a deeper level. It enables us to detect what is standing in our way of the perfection of the present moment of life. Let me give you an example. You're on holiday with one of your best mates. There are wild flowers, vibrant colours, birds with three heads. You're in awe, thinking, wow, I have never seen so much beauty in my life. Your friend, on the other hand, is saying, when can we go to the pub? I'm bored and hate walking. Jambo, this sounds like being on holiday with kids. Jambo says, so that's what your ego is trying to do all day. You could be in a state of enjoyment with your work that day while taking a walk, making love to your partner, and the ego jumps in and tries to ruin it all. Meditation allows us to bring our ego in and say, come here, babes, what's up? It's that communion with all fragments of ourselves that allows us to become more whole. Oh, Jumbo, I love that. I've had a slight revelation. I was still of the thinking that meditation was mainly for me to clear my mind and try to find peace. But what you're saying is that it's actually about listening to our ego and having a conversation with it. It's about having a dialogue with it and a relationship with it. Ironically, it's my ego stopping me from meditating in the first place. My ego constantly says, oh no, you have so many more things you should be doing, tidying the kitchen, finishing emails, going for a walk. I clearly need to meditate ASAP so I can listen to why my ego is telling me this. Fern, that's right. You cannot have a human experience without spirit. Ego can be called many different things. You could call it karma, but you could also call it trauma. The ancestral trauma you're carrying, trauma from your own parents, trauma from your own previous lives, determining how you are going to live your life. All of those examples are aspects of the ego. It's the relationship of ego and spirit. It's impossible to just be with spirit. Ego is the best friend that we can have as it will keep letting us know what is in our way. Spiritual cultivation is possible only due to the ongoing relationship and dialogue with the ego, as it's telling you where the blocks are. So Jumbo, the ego is giving you direct information as to how you can grow and progress. I'm starting to get this. I'm not looking to lose the ego or to feel angry that I have one. It's more an appreciation of it and learning to work with it. It's impossible to clear the mind completely of thought and ego, I should imagine. Fern, 
It is possible the day you die. Ah, right, okay. Jambo continues. Also, when you're asleep, the ego disappears. That's why we're able to have these crazy experiences that we call dreams. We are able to have dreams because our ego has stepped out of the way. When you're meditating, forget about clearing your mind. Just try and be your own best mate. Jambo is part of the process and aid in helping us to find an equal balance between ego and spirit. I can see in my own life the times when ego has taken over, but also times when I've been so in spirit and flying all over the shop. Do we use meditation to find that equilibrium? Yes, Firm, it's called the middle way. You'll have imbalance if you go too far down any direction. The middle route is the balance. What is the middle way? It depends what's on your own personal spectrum. I guess, Jambo, going into anything too extremely in life creates imbalance. One of my big questions for this book is this. Can we start to integrate the traditional, esoteric, spiritual learnings into the jarring modern world with its stresses, fast pace and digital inflections? Is it even possible? Fern, some of my own teachers are very orthodox and we have to be mindful when we talk about some of these traditions because they are so sacred. They have come from thousands of years of sacredness and we need to have respect for them. Many of my practices are secret and I've been sworn to secrecy with them. In China, historically, many traditions were driven out. So many traditions are very secret and hidden still today because of this. I've spoken with many of my teachers and have initiated conversation around updating and moving beyond some of the older teachings because otherwise they'll get even more lost. I can't share these ancient teachings unless we change some of the rules. Some of the teachings have been lost because in the dynamic of the master and the disciple, if the master is dying, unless the master decides that the disciple should hold these teachings, they will die with the master. I don't want any more of these teachings to die. I want to share them with the masses. Jambo, it's such a tough one, as I'm sure you want to continue to completely honour the teachings, but also to share them to stop people from suffering, inflicting pain on others, and also the planet. Yes, it's taken me time to convince my teachers, but we have to move forwards. Even moving these sorts of teachings online is a big change. We have to get the message out there in the modern world. I want to learn from people like you, Jambo, and also learn more about all of these teachings with the utmost respect. I guess I'm trying to do that by listening and learning, but sometimes I worry about sharing these ideas because I'm not sure where the boundaries are. I don't want to steal from the sacred in any way. This language you're using, Fern, comes from modern-day discussions around cultural appropriation. I have a problem with it. I know we're discussing spirituality, but when looking at all religions and methodologies, they adopt from others. All traditions merge and get adopted and have done for thousands of years. Some traditions come from a reaction to others. Historically, religions will have adopted traditions or reacted to them in an opposing way to carve out their own method for doing things. For example, you'll see similarities in traditions within Native American life and Aboriginal communities due to the element of people starting to travel and migrate hundreds of years ago. Cross-pollination and ideas being transferred is ubiquitous in all teachings. That has been magnified today due to the internet, I guess. There is cross-pollination everywhere culturally and spiritually. Yes, it's a combination of understanding and learning about differing cultures and practices, 
but also sharing the message so that globally we can find more peace. Well, Jumbo, I have adored listening to you talk today and have really got an understanding of meditation now. I know I can't put meditation off any longer. Thank you so much, Jambo. Meditating challenge. I set myself a challenge, yet simultaneously worry the framework of a challenge is missing the point altogether. A challenge to meditate every day for a month. I'm of course hoping to carry this on forever, but let's learn to walk before we can run, eh? I'm not sure if this is cheating, but being a huge fan of Deepak Chopra and his books, talks and teachings, I opt for an online podcast he has with daily 15-minute meditations. His voice is like a warm bath. Within minutes of hearing his soft vowels, my neck muscles start to loosen up. I feel excited, buoyant even, that I'm already a changed woman. I'm a daily meditator, even though I've not even started. Along with excitement, there is a twang of nervousness as I don't want to listen to my ego. At the best of times, it's self-obsessed, lives in the victim and loathes rather than accepts. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to converse with it or even make peace with it. Jumbo's words, come here babes, what's up, ring in my ears. I need to comfort this tortured ego like I would a lost friend. I need to meet with it and let the spirit meet the whinging. I really have nothing to lose. Day one of meditating goes a little like this. Spiritual self. Oh, Deepak's voice is already bliss. Ego. I fancy a hot chocolate. Spiritual self. Shh. Ego. I'll look forward to one straight after. Just focus on Deepak's voice. Oh, I forgot to post about this week's Happy Place podcast on Instagram. I'll do that after. Ego. Why do you feel the need to keep looking for things to do? I don't know. I just like it. The point of this is to not do. Just listen. Maybe I could do a ritual for my upcoming 40th birthday. All my mates could do it with me. I know you're looking for a loophole here, trying to keep it spiritual, but can you just pause for a minute? It's a good idea though, isn't it? Deepak has just revealed today's mantra. It's so hum. Oh, I like it. So hum. So hum. So hum. This meditation is quite long. How long are we doing this for? So hum. I'm not sure I can do this every day. So hum. Definitely treat myself to a hot chocolate afterwards. So hum. So hum. So hum. So hum. So hum. I got there in the end. The first 10 minutes were like taming a tyrannical toddler. Day two. Ah, shit, I forgot. Day three. Work was so busy, husband away. Shit, I forgot. I know that I have to think of meditation like brushing my teeth. I want to get to the place where it is impossible to forget as it's just a given. The safest bet seems to be to do it after the kids have gone to bed. There is little excuse at this time of the day, and I'm hoping that it'll ease me into the direction of bed too. Today, I worked a pretty long day with back-to-back meetings, bookended by school runs and feeding the kids. Come 8pm when the house is silent for the first time since 6.30 in the morning, the temptation to put the TV on and zone out is overwhelming. Yet, I know I have 21 days to implement this new positive habit, so I'd better start somewhere.
I sit down and ready myself to meet with my ego. Deepak once again offers up a mantra, which is a wonderful tool to bring your mind back to a simple line of thought. My ego is noisy today and self-love is low on the agenda. A lot of rabbiting on in the pockets of silence. Whenever Deepak leaves a sliver for solitude, my ego jumps in to fill it. Now I'm observing my own thought patterns. It's almost comical to watch these ego-led thoughts jump to the forefront. The thoughts come thick and fast and oscillate between worrying about what I have to line up for the next day and the utterly irrelevant that is lurking in the crevices of my mind. I pull my attention back to the mantra and smile at this ridiculous game of mental sheep herding. In this moment, I realise how much I need to do this. My mind often goes about its business completely ungoverned. I rarely try to quiet the ego because I'm so often led to think that all its thoughts are based on fact and truth. I'm enjoying questioning all of it now. There is a little more ease to this 15 minutes of mind wrangling as I keep in mind Jambo's instruction that this isn't about losing all ego-based thoughts. It's about observing them and listening to them to see what is really beneath. I have a strong inkling that what lies beneath is a want for control. When life is busy, which seems to be all of the time at the moment, I crave control. I want to feel like I can manage and cope so the omnipresent lists and solving of logistical problems become my comfort blanket. In that moment of realisation, I feel like this could be the spirit meeting the ego. It's listening to its chitter-chatter and acknowledging its cry for safety. Can a heap of lists save me? Can constant rumination fend off the uncertain future? I doubt it. My spirit knows otherwise, and during this meditation, gently whispers to my ego that I have to lean in more to hope and less into lists. But what about now? My dive into meditation continues in fits and starts of practising and forgetting. I have a way to go until this feels like just brushing my teeth in the morning. On the days that I do, I notice a fair amount of ego wrangling beforehand that is becoming tiresome. My ego really doesn't want me to do it. Sometimes my life feels like a spinning top moving without pause. My ego willing it on to keep whirling, backed by a fear of what stopping might mean. Once I've pushed through the inner argument of the ego and the spirit and I'm sat on the floor ready to surrender, I experience five minutes of discomfort. Five minutes of wanting to jump up and keep doing. Being feels unnatural and nerve-wracking as my ego lists things I could and should be doing instead to keep up with the pace of life. Why is sitting in the moment so tricky? For many of us, the ways in which we work will have exacerbated how little we live in the now. The digital world usually either pulls us back into the past or propels us into the future. We are rarely encouraged in our online worlds to sit steadily in the present. Eckhart Tolle has outsmarted his ego by living his whole life committed to fully living in the moment. He has allowed allocated time for future planning, trips, meeting up with friends, holidays, etc. But for the most part, he has sat happily and contentedly in the now. You might ask, what's the point? Isn't it fun to look ahead and feel excited about something? It can, of course, be, but it can also lead to disappointment if things don't unfurl as imagined. 
Eckhart's thinking is that we should instead just enjoy the moment fully when it arrives. Living in a mindset that is always focused on the past or the future invites anxiety, anger, dissatisfaction and fear into the equation. Eckhart talks passionately about negating those emotions by sitting in this very moment. Maybe try it now. If you sit and think about what is happening now and now only, are you scared without looking forward or back? Are you angry without looking forward or back? Is it possible? One certainty is that meditation brings you squarely into the now. If you keep directing your thoughts back to your breath or a simple mantra or just the state of listening that Jambo talked of, then we can train our minds like a muscle to sit in the moment rather than racing to the past or future. The brain game. As the days rumble by, my ego gets softer. It isn't so desperate to shout and moan, and I don't feel like jumping out of my skin each time I sit to surrender to meditation and some time out. This is perhaps a small and insignificant example, but on one particular morning, some 10 days into my more committed daily practice, I notice that before a scheduled Instagram Live, I feel wonderfully calm. Normally, I'm slightly on edge, hoping the live session is warmly received and that I'm not judged or ridiculed. My insecurities normally rise to the surface and teeter on the edge, hoping to push me into despair. Yet, today... I feel totally normal. My head isn't racing to find problems of future worries that are yet to come to fruition. I feel so noticeably different that I start to worry that perhaps I should indeed feel more, well, worried. Isn't that how so many of us live these days? In a state of raw panic where edginess and an omnipresent sensation of stress are never far away, even if we have nothing to really apply it to. In moments of calm, we often question if it's okay to lean into the serenity. Today, I do, knowing that it's not just the magic of meditation that has brought me here. It's the willingness to listen to my ego and look beneath its shouts, rather than being completely controlled by its impulses. Often, when we feel out of control, it's because we're being steered by our ego entirely. We have lost sight of the bigger picture and all spiritual connection. I'd previously overlooked how this meeting of my spiritual self and ego in meditation could help me cultivate more hope and faith in life. In those moments where I'm wrestling with my own ego-led desires or worries, I'm now able to see with more clarity that it's not me that's impatient, restless and scared. It's a cluster of old thoughts and habits that keep me wedded to the pace and stress of the modern world. I am not my ego. It's a part of me that I cannot deny or ignore, but it's not fully who I am. My thoughts are not who I am. They again are manifested by my life experience, but not the entirety of me. When I'm meditating, I can now make that separation and watch and listen to these thoughts and worries rather than have them pull out emotions and reactions that aren't always helpful. If my ego is bellowing that I continue working without a break and push through a giant headache so I can keep on top of things, I can now see the years of moments in my life where I felt lesser than or overlooked and know that it's these old thoughts that are speaking. 
If my ego is overly defensive and plotting an imaginary text message to someone that I'll never send, I can see, when in meditation, that I'm hurting and looking for a vent to release some of this tension. Senior monk Gelong Tupton teaches meditation the world over and is committed to giving people the power and knowledge that we can all choose happiness in certain situations. He says in his book, A Monk's Guide to Happiness, that meditation helps us to access what feels like a deep well within, filled with nourishing water that we can drink whenever we want. How beautiful is that? Even if it doesn't feel like that, we all have love and comfort bubbling within us for the taking, in all its nature and abundant glory. We have mostly been tricked by modern-day advertising that we have to buy this sort of feeling with a shiny car or latest on-trend jacket. We all know that we might feel happiness for a fleeting moment while donning the aforementioned trendy jacket, but that happiness is ephemeral. The happiness Tupton talks of is omnipotent and omnipresent, and most importantly, free. Social media has perhaps put even more focus on accolade, with status and busyness taking centre stage on the grid. We make mental connections and assumptions that lead us to believe that we might find eternal happiness if we are the big boss, the CEO, the shiny celebrity or busiest business owner. Is that a guarantee, though? Again, probably not. I know loads of important people who are bloody miserable. Tupton continues, Instead of feeling like our lives are spinning out of control with stress, loneliness and dissatisfaction dominating our minds, we can become more connected within, more centred, even in busy situations. Tupton's words prod me with a much-needed reminder that my mind isn't in control of me. I'm in control of it, and with a little meditation brought into the equation, I have a chance to understand my mind as well as the tools to train it. Soothing sound. Meditation is never just one thing. We often feel put off as we believe we have to settle on one idea of what meditation is and looks like. Having the concentration span of a month-old sausage dog has meant that I've really needed to try out many methods to keep me going back to it. Sound meditation has been a source of real comfort and joy for me. Being a music lover, I instantly feel every cell in my body relax if I hear the right notes in sequence. My thoughts are quieter and less urgent as my mind drifts into pure bliss when I pick up on nice sounds. But what is sound meditation? I dug a little deeper into this subject to see how we can bring it into our everyday and spoke with Jasmine Hosono, an intuitive well-being guide, sound artist, author, speaker and founder of conscious lifestyle brand Emerald and & Tiger and community platform Breathe Love. I hosted a sound bath, another name for sound meditation, on my Instagram page recently and zoned out so much that I forgot I had to sit up at the end and talk to the lovely lot who were watching live. It's pure sensory bliss. Hi Jasmine, what is sound healing slash meditation? Sound healing has been around since the beginning of time. It has been used in ancient cultures such as the Egyptian, Tibetan, Mongolian and Mayan and practiced by shamans and medicine people worldwide throughout the centuries. We use sound to heal in various ways, celebration, ceremony, expression and to communicate. 
We are all made up of energy and vibration. Sound is innately part of us. It connects us to our emotions, feelings, memories, thoughts, and even deeper at a soul level, and it expands way beyond what we sense, hear, or feel. During a sound meditation, the practitioner uses the power of intention combined with the resonance, meaning and healing vibrations of usually live sounds to help the participant or participants receive what they need at that time. For example, deep relaxation or rest. The participant is taken on a sound healing journey where healing sound vibrations and frequencies are shared via sound instruments and tools. The sound tools are crystal bowls, a gong, drum, the voice, tuning forks, chimes and more, which help people centre into their bodies and shift their energy and vibration back to a balanced state. Analogy. Every instrument played in an orchestra has its own sound and vibration. When played in tune with all the other instruments, the whole orchestra feels at one. However, if one or more instrument is playing out of tune, the orchestra as a whole sounds off. They are not playing in harmony with one another. Once the instruments are all back in tune, there is harmony again, a perfect symphony. The same applies to our body and how sound helps us to get back into balance. Our bodies are made up of our skin, cells, tissue, muscles and organs. They all have their own vibration and when in harmony with everything else in the body, there is balance, ease and flow within. If something in the body is out of balance, disease may show up. Our bodies are comprised of four layers, the emotional, physical, mental and spiritual body. Sound meditation helps to realign and bring our body back into a state of wholeness so that all parts of the body are working in harmony together, just like a fully tuned orchestra. Sound meditation is often referred to as a sound bath because when sound is shared, we are bathing our bodies in it like we would bathe in bath water. Our bodies are made up of around 60% water. The sound vibrations flow through the water within our body. Sound meditation has grown in popularity in recent years as we seek ways to de-stress and tap into a holistic way of living. Those who are new to meditation and are curious about it often find sound meditations easier to experience because there is less instruction and doing. They can relax into their surrounding space and body and surrender to the sounds playing. The sounds help lessen the distraction of racing thoughts and other things that make it hard to settle into meditation. Sound healing is scientifically proven to shift our energy and bring harmony to our body, but not every experience will be blissful. Our bodies are likely to be holding stress and tension from past life experiences. Sound meditations may bring awareness to that tension. We may find that the experience is overwhelming or emotional, at some point in the coming days, weeks and months, sound healing will support us back to our true state of being as we let go of what no longer serves us and remember our power, wisdom and potential. Most people find sound meditation relaxing. There are lots of benefits, including aids the body's natural ability to heal, regulates breathing, brain waves and heart rate, produces a sense of calm and well-being, Reduces tension, calming the nervous system. Promotes deep relaxation and healing sleep. Aids a meditative state. Deepens mental clarity. 
promotes a sense of connectedness and higher power, deepens spiritual connection and practice, reduces stress and anxiety, lowers cortisol levels, increases creativity, focus and clarity, decreases tension and fatigue, boosts mood, stimulates the release of serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin and endorphins, improves sleep, increases melatonin levels. Important note, those who are sound sensitive should attend a sound meditation with caution. Those with metal implants or pacemakers and pregnant women in their first trimester should seek medical advice if they are new to the practice. Jasmine, how does sound help us to relax or reach a meditative state? During a sound meditation, participants often report feeling safe because sound is so familiar to them, giving space to let go and relax. The sound vibrations go deeper, penetrating the body, helping to reduce tension, anxiety and stress, promoting a deep sense of calm and connection and bringing people into deeper states of rest. Some sound frequencies can shift a participant from beta, active, to alpha, calm, theta, meditation, delta, sleep states. The theta state frequency is 3.5 to 7.5 hertz, so if a sound therapist plays at that frequency, they will encourage the participant into a meditative state. Jasmine, how can we incorporate this into our everyday life? There are simple yet profound ways of incorporating sound into everyday life. Sound meditation classes and one-to-one sessions. Seek out sound meditation classes or a private session that may be offered in person or virtually. Download a meditation. Download, stream and listen to various sound meditations online. Experiment and see what you like. You'll find a variety of sound meditations shared via YouTube, Instagram and more. Start small. Try a 15-minute sound meditation before bed to help ease you into a deep, restful sleep. Nature sounds. Healing sounds are all around us. I recommend getting out into nature as often as possible and consciously listening and connecting to the sounds of nature around you, such as birds singing, rain falling, the wind moving through trees and the flowing ocean waves. Our voice. Our voice is an instrument that I consider to be the most essential sound tool. Through our voice, we can create a sound meditation of its own. We are sound. It is not about sounding perfect, but vocalising sounds that encapsulate how we feel in the moment, healing tension, anger, worry, and bringing us into higher vibrational states, such as joy and peace. Start by simply humming a couple of times a day. Feel the vibration. Do this in the shower or when walking the kids to school or cooking dinner. Experiment by changing the tone and pitch of your voice. Hum softly and then hard. See what resonates. Breathe through the experience. Soon you may discover that sounding through your voice becomes an integral part of your everyday life and helps shift your energy flow. You may even start to experiment by trying other vocal healing techniques such as chanting and singing sacred mantras and songs, toning, intuitive voice and more. Finally, if you're interested in playing sound meditations at home, do your research to purchase sound healing instruments from reputable and ethical manufacturers. Slowly build your sound kit, become familiar with your instruments and create a deep connection to your sound tools. Get your family and friends involved and start creating sound together. 
It is honestly part of our heritage to come together and connect through sound. Simply listening. These last few weeks of giving myself that time at the start or end of the day has calmed a part of me that felt wildly out of control. Before chatting to Jambo, I was still working on the assumption that I had to rid myself of all ego and negative thought when in meditation. This led to me feeling like I'd failed before I'd even started. Now in these brief moments of stillness, I simply listen. I listen to my inner moaning and groaning and ask my ego, what is up? It's allowing me the freedom and room to forgive myself more deeply for past mistakes and a willingness to have more self-compassion and compassion for others, knowing that we're all in the same boat. We are all part spirit and part ego, bumbling along on this complex planet, trying our best, making mistakes and looking for love. My ego is probably always only looking for love. It just goes about it in a strange way. It shouts for it, craves it, and sometimes wants to attain it through power or control. The part of me that is pure spirit is love, so can always offer up the right words, level of comfort and clarity when my ego enters the room. No one of us is more spiritual than the next person. Some of us just have a louder ego. I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed writing this book and also doing the audiobook. It was really cathartic reading back the stuff that I'd learned and it changed my life massively. I was able to really get rid of some huge self-limiting beliefs that I'd been lugging around and I was able to nearly eliminate, nearly, because I think this is work in progress, I was able to nearly eliminate lots of old negative stories that I really believed about myself. I believed they were true. Talking to all these brilliant people in the book has allowed me to just move through it and find the truth of the matter. And I guess see the bigger picture and see the world in all its expansive glory. If you enjoyed that and you want to hear the rest, the audiobook of Bigger Than Us will be available to buy on Audible, Apple Books and Google Play from the 20th of January. Or you can get yourself a hardback or ebook copy. It's up to you. I do not mind which one you have. Thanks so much for being here, you lovely lot. I so appreciate you sticking around to listen to that. I really hope that you liked it. I'll see you soon. <laughs>